Welcome to The Drummer's Pathway, the podcast about music, life, and the creative process. Hello, I'm Michael Scott, and welcome to the Drummer's Pathway podcast. This episode features part two of my interview with John Bermuda Schwartz, who is best known for his four decades spent as the drummer and band archivist for the iconic Weird Al Yankovic. John has a great perspective on the creative process and finding balance between managing a career and creative paths. So let's get started with part two of my interview with the great John Bermuda Schwartz. Most of Al's shows generally focus on the parody aspect um, with a lot of the originals kind of built into that as well too, involving costumes, video. It's like a huge production. Um, I The first time I saw Al, even though I've been a fan for years, was actually the mandatory fun tour. That was actually the first opportunity I got to see the band. And it was an incredibly professional and entertaining show and my wife and I we just we just loved the experience I also saw the following tour which was the orchestral tour the strings attached tour I saw that show in Toronto and that was an amazing production the one tour I really regret not getting the opportunity to see was the one you just finished up which I believe was called the unfortunate return of the ridiculously self-indulgent ill-advised vanity tour where you actually foregoed the parodies and the production and really focused on the original songs on those ones to kind of um, really showcase them i have seen a lot of videos um, from that tour and it was and it's something that i really regret missing but what was it like to actually be able to focus in a more scaled down environment really focusing on those rather than the bigger production well it's it's a very different kind of a show by and by the way we started we did that we did a vanity tour or a no frills tour as we called it in 2018 as well between mandatory fun and the uh, strings attached and uh and we learned then and it was really it was kind of a love letter to the fans as we say i mean it was really you know you know without the parodies it wasn't for a mainstream kind of a, of an audience it was for the more dedicated fans and and they showed up uh and and sold out like every show and and it, it worked very well now the strings attached tour was already kind of in the works in al's head so we came back and did that in 2019 uh 2020 was a year off uh 2021 was still covid issues a bit so we we saved the next tour until 2022 and went out and did six months of uh more of this vanity tour uh, of the originals brought brought in uh, a couple of different originals than we did in 2018. Uh, the thing about the tour is every night was different. Every set was different and we rotate uh, 35, 40 songs, something like that. So we, some songs would get played once a week. Some songs would get played, you know, four out of five nights. It just sort of depended. And for us, that was a lot of fun. We, you know, change things up a bit. I was a lot more casual. It's not, I, I don't want to say it not as rigid as the production show, but the production show is well timed. I mean, it's it's not all sequenced to a video or anything, but a lot of it is. And and we don't have the freedom to say, you know, wait a minute, I'm I'm not tuned up, or you know, or you know, uh, I'm sorry, my costume's not not on. I'm going to have to come out with my my pants or something like yeah. that. You know, it wasn't. Uh, you know, when when we do the full production show, like mandatory fun and strings attached was the same way. Uh, we're we're kind of on the clock and which in itself is not bad but it doesn't allow for any freedom whatever that means whether it's the freedom to make a mistake or the freedom to say something or the freedom to to you know to mess up a song and have to play an extra four bars before al remembers the lyrics to come back in whatever it is it's it's very rigid and uh you know with with the uh vanity tour we just we're just playing i mean al too i mean al had to learn parts to songs that he wrote that he'd never played before you know 2018 he had to come out and, and on his accordion he had a roland midi accordion that would make all sorts of different sounds keyboard sounds guitar sounds horns choirs you know actually it, it was actually a real accordion as well as a synth accordion i mean whatever you wanted to do you could do with this thing so he had to actually learn parts 
you know, like relearn parts to songs that he had written, but never played in the studio or some songs we'd never even played live before. We had to go in and, and learn and relearn songs that we hadn't played, you know, maybe ever as a band, you know, before there were a lot of songs that were played live for the first time on that tour. Uh, so we came, it was a successful tour, came back and did it in 2022, uh, did some more dates in 2023 in Europe and Australia, uh, played Hawaii for the first time in March of 2023. Uh, and, and doing the show like that, it's really, it is more of a performance and it is, it's more casual. We're a li little less under the gun. I mean, you know, it doesn't mean we're allowed to get lazy up there, but it's not quite, you know, if I missed my count off on the, on the track, uh, we're going to be off you know, or something, or if, if the server goes down in the middle of the song, it's just, it's going to hang us out to dry. You know, there's all sorts of things we don't have to worry about when we're just up there playing for real. And, uh, and I don't know that I prefer one over the other. I mean, I, I just, I enjoy playing drums. So if the, if I have a click in my head or not, it doesn't much matter to me. I just, I like hitting drums and that's fine. Uh, but I think, I think overall these, these, uh, uh, no frills shows just, you know, just us doing the originals, you know, one, the fans love it because they didn't, they didn't get, you know, they, some of them like the originals more than the parodies. Some of them are going, you know, Al, you're funny. You don't need to make fun of other songs. You know, you're, you're, you know, we love the originals. And so it was a very successful uh, series of tours and, uh, and, and we did enjoy it. I mean, but again, we just, we enjoy doing it. I think when we come back next time, we're probably going to come back with uh, more of the production, which means videos, which means sequences, which means costumes, uh, more of a show. And that's okay too. I mean, that's, and we'll probably play bigger venues, you know, on, on these no frills tours, we were doing, you know, 15, 1800 seaters, maybe 2,500 kind of at the most. And on a, on a regular tour with the full production, we'll play, you know, 2,025, 3,500 seaters, 5,000, you know, there's places we play that are 6,000, 9,000 uh, seats and, and we'll sell them out. And, uh, but that includes more than just our hardcore fans. You know, that includes, uh, the, the more mainstream, more casual, uh, fans that do like the parodies that do like the show aspect of what we do. So they like the video, they like all the lightings. They don't, you know, they're not necessarily impressed to just come see the band play. Whereas the hardcore fans, you know, the more dedicated fans, they do want to see that. And, and they, they came out, we sold out every show, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're there for us and they're going to govern how much longer we go on. I mean, it hasn't occurred to us when to stop, you know, until they stop coming to see us. And and so far, so good. There's no sign of that coming. Well, on the original tour, I believe you played the Danforth Music Hall in Toronto four nights. I think you did two nights and then came back a year or two later and did another two nights. All shows got sold out and I unfortunately was unable to attend any of them. And I deeply regret that. So I am determined the next time you're in the area, I am going to do whatever I can to make one of your shows again. Well, it helps if you know someone in the band, you can check with them and see if you can get some tickets. <laughs> I will keep that in mind. I know some of the guys. For a number of years, you actually wrote a fairly regular column for Drum Magazine, of which you shared your wisdom and experience about what it's like to be a working musician, not just in terms of the celebrity aspect, but just from a someone that just wants to get more work in the industry and what it sort of takes. And I remember once, which really resonated with me at the time, you wrote a column about the value of having a day job and how it's important to not kind of starve for your art and, the, <laughs> and, and and there there is no and there's no shame in choosing to have a career that corresponds alongside with the pursuit of music and and i that column really resonated with me and it's something i read years ago that still carries with me and i was just kind of curious about your perspective on that well, uh, the, the, the quote was starving for one's art is highly overrated <laughs> and, uh, which I think I made that up. I'm, I'm not sure, but, uh, but you know, certainly not the concept, but, uh, uh, but it's true. I mean, I, I just, uh, you know, it never occurred to me to, that I would get any further in my career if I applied myself, you know, 20 hours a day, it doesn't, doesn't work that way. You know, we all work very hard to do what we do, and it just it doesn't always depend on on what we do. I mean, our our ability to move forward depends on someone else, really. Uh, and and you know, and and it's that whole right place, right time thing, and you don't know when that is, uh, if it'll ever happen. I mean, I was in the right place in the right time when I met Al. Had no idea he was going anywhere. 
uh you know certainly a couple of years before it looked like we were going anywhere uh certainly had no idea it would last this long but it was i was in the right place at the right time and said the right thing which was you know you you need to have a band i'll be your drummer and that's that was the beginning and that's just again not knowing what that would lead to but right place right time and i didn't create that i didn't make sure that you know oh, i bet there's going to be someone at the dr demento show i better get down there and you know see if i can make a connection it wasn't about that at all uh you you, you can't create the right place in the right time it just it happens when it happens and you don't know when it is if you knew when it was that'd be simple you could just go there at the right place the right time and and you'd be all set you know if you hooked up with someone that had some longevity that would be great not everybody has the longevity else had i mean there's that too you know if i'd gotten five good years out of it i would look back and, and think that was very cool you know the fact that it's been now over 40 years uh you know with with no signs of slowing down is is a real bonus but the whole day job thing and in fact i got to credit al with uh with my most recent day job when i say most recent day job i mean the one i left you know almost 30 years ago uh he had gotten me into a place that was the the syndicator of the dr demento show and of course uh and and when al had finished working there dr demento was able to get al a job al needed a job too when he was done with college uh got him a job in the mailroom at uh at uh, this company westwood one a radio syndicator uh here in los angeles and uh not not too long after that i mean i actually already had met al at that point uh but not too long after that you know one of the guys in the mailroom hard to imagine for a company with only about 35 people in it they would need two guys in the mailroom but uh the other guy was going down to quit and al called me he says uh victor was the other guy he says victor's going down he's he's quitting do you want to come down and apply for the job you know i wasn't really working at the time i said sure so i came down uh i'd had some real real jobs and some managerial experience you know I was a sharp kid i wasn't a typical musician came in you know not that you need a lot to go work in the mailroom but came in got the job you know i said well you know i i play drums for al back there in the mailroom you know we and in fact at that point we'd already recorded our first album so we were already kind of on a path at that point i, I said uh you know when when the album comes out one of these days and you know we we go on the road i'm going to need to take off and they said yeah you you be sure and let us know when that happens you know you, yeah you, of course you will sure yeah yeah well anyway we 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 did we did go on the road except i came back and uh and we were only gone about three and a half weeks but i and i'd already moved up from the mailroom to another position at that point and evidently they felt that i was important enough that i could go disappear for three and a half weeks and they were better off you know covering for me than trying to rehire some you know try to hire somebody back in they would just wait and that became kind of a theme for the next 14 years of of my employment and and some other promotions and stuff is that i would go on the road it's disappear and again i'm not not on salary but i would go on the road and come back and, and come back into the same position or in some cases i got promoted while i was on tour i would get a promotion and come back in into a new position more money uh you know more responsibility and uh eventually and and again after 14 years and and you know al and i were pretty far along at this point this was 1996 uh that i'd been at the company 14 years already and you know we had gold and platinum albums i had all sorts of drum deals uh you know we were you know i didn't i didn't have to work a day job uh but i did you know because i i had paychecks coming in year round and it was it was pretty i didn't have any time to myself because like, any time i took off went to the tour so vacation time there was no such thing anymore but they're finally in 1996 with that tour and it was a five-month tour over the summer uh and uh at that point that that it was time to it was time to leave and and i think we we both both the company and i knew that it's like you know i I can't keep coming and going like this. I got too much going on here. You need somebody who can do it. And, you know, not to be smug, but I, I don't really need this job anymore. And, uh, you know, but I'm very grateful for the 14 years. And I dare say that would not happen today uh, the way it did with me at that time because of the uh, Dr. Demento connection, because they syndicated the Dr. Demento show. So it started out as a favor, but turned out, oh, this, this John guy, and they called me Bermuda, of course, they said he's he's pretty valuable i guess we're just you know we're better off just letting him go disappear for three months and then come back and 
you know, and then pick up where he left off rather than bring someone in and not know what they're going to do and, and, you know, have to deal with that. We just, we just let it, and this happened like seven times over the course of the 14 years, my coming and going. Uh, but the, the concept, but again, I, I can't, I can't tell everybody that if you go get a day job, they're going to let you go do whatever you want, whenever you want it. That's probably not going to happen. Uh, no, it's not going to happen. It, it will not happen for you anymore. Uh, that doesn't mean don't go out and support yourself. Don't go out and earn some money so you can, oh, I don't know, eat, yeah. uh, keep the lights on, have a place to live and store your gear, uh, be able to buy sticks and heads and symbols when you need them, put gas in the car. You know, the, you got to have money in order to just get by. Uh, you know, most of the projects you will start out doing aren't going to require you to be around at at 1 p.m. on a on a Tuesday. You know, it's okay to go get a nine to five job Monday through Friday or whatever it is. And you have your evenings free, which frankly, when you hook up with other musicians, most of them are also going to be in the same situation. They're only going to have their evenings and weekends free. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to gain any ground by being available, you know, some afternoon when the rest of the band is working till five or 6 PM, you know, uh, you know, if you're all on the same page, you know, you can all move forward together, but having that extra time and starving for it is just not worth it. Um, you know, I absolutely recommend that, that people go out if, if they need to, and most people need money, you know, rent, what, what, you know, car payment, whatever it is, uh, you know, get a job. There's no shame in doing that. There's no shame in having any money and being able to afford to pursue, you know, your, your art. And then when it, when the art starts paying off, then you can make a decision about which way you want to go. I was lucky. I, I got to do both. And there were a lot of guys who would have killed to be in my position, you know, to have a year round paycheck, to have like a, a full time steady thing going on when I wasn't playing music. And I was always playing music. But as far as when I wasn't on tour, let's say, but I was in several other bands. I've, I've, I'm in five bands right now. Uh, you know, now some of them take precedent over others. Like, for example, Al takes precedent over all of them, of course. And they all know that. And just like my old day job, they all have me come back. I can go disappear for three, four, five months, six months last year it was. And I come back and I come right back into these bands. I mean, I can't think of a time I've ever been replaced, permanently replaced uh, in, in one of my own bands, uh, you know, it's, it's which is pretty cool. And and that, what ha that has to do with, and this has to do with the day job too, you got to do a good job. You got to treat your day job like you would treat your bands, like they're important, like because they are. You know, you can't sit around all day, you know, in an office or in a store or wherever you're working and and be on the phone, you know, trying to make musical connections. That's not what that time is for. Uh, you know, you've, you've got to treat them uh, in the appropriate manner, and you've got to be serious about both. And you can make them both work. Uh, again, I can't guarantee that anyone's going to be able to do what I did, you know, 30 plus years ago. But I, I was very lucky. I've, I've had some good breaks, and uh, and and actually, they've all stemmed from being on the Doctor Demento show in the first place, meeting Al, and then that led to uh, my Westwood One job, and uh, then that ultimately led to my not having to have a job. And uh, you know, it's it's all about Doctor Demento. It's all about Al for me in the last forty plus years. You also have an avid interest in photography, and have documented al's career through basically the last four decades and over the last year or so you've actually published two hardcover photo books one's black and white and you just put all one that's basically color images of of the time spent as a band throughout al's career and they're beautifully done you oh, did thank you. You, you 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 did send me I, I think a digital preview of them i checked them out i've actually bought the black and white one oh, and, I, and the color one will definitely be added to my collection shortly along the lines of taking these images which is something you have a passion for you've also become the band archivist gathered a huge collection of memorabilia but not only gathered it you've documented it you've organized it you've managed all of this stuff you are the expert and when people need to come in and get access to things you're the one that they call i also know you're an avid drum set collector <laughs> as well where did that passion for collecting come into play and how do you manage all of this stuff well i had always been and and, and sort of the photography was an extension of that too i have always collected stuff i've always uh, hung on to things that I'm a part of. And, and I've always in some way tried to document things when I was, uh, 
uh, first starting to play with other musicians. I think the first time I really played with other musicians was was in 1970 or 71. Uh, some some uh, they actually weren't even schoolmates. They didn't go to my school. Uh, they were from another another high school. And I don't know how we got connected because in those days you you know how how did you know who was at another school? There was no internet. You didn't really connect with people from you know around the area or around the world. You just you you had to physically know somebody, I guess. But somehow I hooked up with these guys from another high school, and uh, they would come over to to my house. And uh, you know, one because I had drums there. I don't even know if we were driving at the time. Probably not. Not in 1971. I didn't have my license yet. And then they would come over on their bikes because we had a piano in the house. So I, you know, it was a piano in the living room, uh, and it was piano, flute, and drums, which is no bass, not in the beginning. And it was sort of a weird combination, but we made it work. And even then, I would make on on my reel to reel recorder, uh, I would make recordings of of these you know these little jams, these rehearsals, and I still have those. And I mean, I just I would just document things in that way, whether it was audio or you know once I get into cameras, you know I would take pictures of things. Uh, I, I would uh, write things down as events occurred that that were neither photographed or or uh, taped, you know, and I hadn't otherwise made a record of those, I would write those down. Uh, eventually that got entered into in the late, sometime in the eighties, uh, I, I began to use computers and uh, put all this stuff into a database, all of the stuff that I'd written down in, in my, my yearly calendars. Uh, you know, uh, every, every single thing that, that happened, I wrote down and and is is searchable. I got an email from a guy at, at NPR, National Public Radio, who was doing a, a piece on Al, and he had contacted Al, and for whatever reason, Al did not know when our first album was released. He didn't have a release date. And the, the guy is saying, well, online it says this, and Al says it was that. You know what? You know, and he said to check with you that you would know. And so and of course I knew, I knew, you know, and, and I don't remember right off the top of my head, maybe it was May 3rd, 1983, I think was, was it. And, and I said, you know, the album was released on this date. It was shipped to radio on this date. It was shipped to the stores on this date. The first single was shipped two weeks prior on this date. And the, then the subsequent single was shipped, you know, on, on this date and, and, you know, it was released on this date and the video came out here. And so I had all of those details and they know, they know that I know. And if I'm not sure, they say, well, whatever you say is just going to be the answer and that's going to be it from now on. So, you know, go ahead and, and make that the real answer. If, you know, if, if, if you don't know what it is, then nobody knows. And so I do have all of that information and it is all uh, written down in, in a couple of different ways. Uh, you know, I, I have a, a list of as much as I can gather all of the product releases from around the world of not only Al stuff, but the, you know, the handful of non-Al things that I've worked on, all of those items, the release dates where I know them. And, and most of the time I do, uh, who the distributor was, the format, the catalog number, uh, if there's anything special about it, uh, you know, whatever it is, these are all listed in, in uh, a database, uh, all the videos we shot. And when there was a, uh, DVD and probably still a VHS coming out of, of Al's like a video compilation to that date, they needed to know the information on when the videos were shot and where. And for whatever reason, Al and his manager, who was the director on most of those videos, did not have that information. They knew I would have it. So I, I provided all the information, you know, all the, all the, you know, the, the dates and the places for those things and any, any little uh, facts that I can remember that were, you know, little stories. And I have all of those written down too. You know, I have, I have like a, a 20 page file of just trivia on Al stuff from, from all of his different email addresses to all of the different hotel security names he's used over the years, you know, just all of this different stuff, different facts about, about the, the albums or the recordings or dates that didn't happen. You know, the times we were, you know, asked if we wanted to play Carnegie hall and, and, you know, couldn't make it work financially, you know, and, and eventually did at the end of the 2022 tour, we wrapped up the tour at Carnegie hall, which is a pretty big deal. Uh, we, we, I should add, we could not have done our big production there. That would have been too much. But as a five-piece band to come out and sit on stage and play, uh, it worked out great. Uh, but I have all of that stuff, and they all, and I eventually put it, and I started Al's website way back in the in the 95, actually. Uh, my first website that I wrote was a website about Al. 
And because uh, some of Al's fans who were a little more technologically inclined than I was uh, already had some websites up, I thought, well, you know, certainly there must be something I can add as somebody who's got photos and information and stuff like that. So I put up a website and within a couple of years, it became weirdal.com. And I managed that for many years. And I put on all of the recording dates of everything uh, that were on the albums. Uh, I probably, I might've put the release dates. I don't know why it's not on the website if it's not. Uh, all of the tour dates that we did, the set lists from the different tours that we did, uh, you know, the, the a list of the videos, all of those things, a list of Al's uh, Grammy Awards and the, the gold and platinum records and when those were awarded. Uh, all of those things are listed on the website. And eventually that was... Uh, evolved into a WordPress site that was one a little more modern than I was able to do. It would work on devices, which I wasn't really into uh, 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 optimization at the time. I'm still not, unfortunately. And uh, it was also being in WordPress was something that he could work on. So he has kept updating it since, but he has kept all of the material that I put in there because it's all it's all there for the ages. You know, anybody that wants to know something about Al can probably find it there. I mean, and, and there's no fluff and there's no lies or omissions. It's every, it's every date we did. It's uh, you know, if somebody, you know, missed a show for whatever reason that's listed. I mean, it's all, it's all very factual and very accurate. And that all came from my files, from my records. And uh, most of which started out before I had databases started out because I, in a date book would write down things that, you know, the dates we were doing. And uh, if anything cool happened that night, I would make a note on that day. And I still have all of those dating all the way back to 1981. Uh, all of the all of the things that I've done in my life, you know, whether it's Al or, or anyone. That's just, I just, I document things. It's what I do. I remember hearing an interview with you because uh, I've been going back and checking some of the other things that you've done. And you were talking about how you, you know, not only do you own copies of all of Al's albums, you own copies of albums, Al's albums released in different countries. You also own copies of the bootleg versions <laughs> of Al's albums, just to kind of have that, that completest element, which is something, you know, I, I'm an avid collector of things. When I was a kid, my mom always used to say that I collected collections. Cause for me, if I had, two things of something i couldn't not keep adding to that mm. so after a while it becomes it becomes a habit that can be hard to break and hard to manage i believe at one point i had read that you or had heard that you had something in terms of a symbol collection that was upwards of 800 plus symbols i don't know if you've weaned that out oh no at all no so no uh it's it is now 1031 <laughs> and uh and I know that because it's in a database and yes. I can count the number of entries in the database. Uh, anyway, the, uh, yeah, that's, that's, I have a lot of symbols. The, the whole thing about symbols is one, they don't take up a lot of room. Uh, I mean, they're like an eighth of an inch thick. If you, if you nest them all sort of on their edge, they, you know, they're not, you know, a thousand symbols is not that big of a, of a piece of real estate. Uh, but the thing about symbols is uh, they, they sound different. You know, most of them, you know, a lot of Pisces sound very, very close to each other. But, but uh, you know, Sabians and Zildjans and, and the, the Turkish symbols and all the rest, they sound different. And if you need, and again, with, with what I was doing sound-wise, I needed a lot of different sounds. Now, do I need a thousand symbol sounds? Perhaps not. Or perhaps I do. I don't know. Uh, but But I needed those sounds because I couldn't otherwise replicate them. I couldn't, you can't. You know, with a snare drum, if you need a certain live snare sound, there are a lot of physical snare drum options. There's a lot of options as far as tuning. If you want to change hoops, if you want to change wires, there's a lot of things you can do to a drum to make it sound a lot of different ways. And if it doesn't, you can get a different drum. But if you need a pair of hi-hats that sounds a certain way, you know, dark and slushy and, and you know, kind of ugly and crunchy maybe, you got to have those. You can't take a pair of, of uh, you know, uh, Sabian new AA hats and make them sound that way, you know, with EQ or anything, they, they won't sound that way. You have to have an instrument that sounds like that. And that is what began the, the amassment of symbols, you know, and, and again, once you have two of something, why not have a thousand of it? Uh, you know, and, and so it's not like, you know, you know, certainly I haven't made a thousand different symbol sounds. You know, I didn't need to buy all of those symbols, but I did, in some cases, I'm very glad I did. Uh, you know, I'm very glad that I had those on hand rather than, oh, I need this symbol sound next week and I have to go all over town looking for it. And, you know, and and I'm at the mercy of, you know, whatever store might have it, maybe. 
you know, most of the symbols I bought have been used. So there's a, a savings that way, uh, of course. Uh, but if I hear a new, you know, a new symbol in a store and I absolutely am in love with it, I will buy it. And, uh, and there's, there's certainly a number of those in the collection as well. Uh, what's good about symbols is they only appreciate in value. And I know that because as I go and, and, you know, and I, I'm still out, I don't need more symbols and I'm really trying at this point to, to start offloading some stuff but if you know i i still keep an eye out for symbols and i'm not finding any that are really priced where i want them which is bad for me buying symbols but good when i go to sell them because i know prices are going up so uh you know to say that i have uh you know a hundred thousand dollars worth of symbols is probably accurate uh you know on on a on a good day and those would be those aren't even like new prices those are good used prices i mean some of these symbols you know when i put them up are going to they're nobody's going to bargain with me they're going to just take the symbol and say you know what is two hundred dollars for that absolutely uh you know it's it's not going to be a problem to to sell them and that's you know that will add to my retirement someday i'm not going to sell them all i'm going to keep you know you know 200 of them or something <laughs> I, I, i'll keep what i need to use and and the same with drums i have 110 111 snare drums i don't need that many i've got three or four that i use regularly honestly i've got some that are collectible but you know do i need 111 no i don't and at some point uh, i will be selling those drum sets i've got 33 34 complete sets you know do i need that many you know have i even used them all no no there's just there's a handful that i use uh but you know, at some point I will, I will be letting those go. And, uh, you know, which, which will be kind of a sad day, you know? Uh, I mean, it's, it's been fun. You know, there's a bit of status that goes along with that. Some of the, the kits have some sentimental value. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be tough to do that, but it's going to be tougher for my wife to handle that if I'm gone and all of a sudden she, you know, figures out what I have and how to have to liquidate it. That's, that's not going to be fun. Well, I, I know you're an avid collector of Ludwig drums, and I remember I had recently acquired a Ludwig Acrylite drum, and because I'm not as knowledgeable on Ludwig, I was trying to determine some information on them, and I thought I need to ask someone. So the person I chose to ask was you. Mm. So I sent you a picture of the drum and asked you some questions, and you provided me with the details that I was looking for because you have such an extensive knowledge on that. So it's nice oh. to be able to kind of reach out things. So it's something I very much appreciated. And it was extremely helpful for me oh well well thank you yeah i i uh i'm i'm not an expert really i mean there's some things i know there's certainly a bunch of guys out there that are much bigger aficionados and and uh you know uh mentors on on that stuff you know and go-to guys i mean and and some are very specialized there's a guy in indianapolis who specializes in these these super sensitive mechanisms <laughs> of of the you know the flip up flip down things and all and he's got parts and and castings and he's got and he's the guy for all of that stuff i mean he's the bob oiler is o-y-l-e-r is the guy that everyone has to talk to on that stuff because he's just the guy who knows well in this year then they changed the connection here and then this had, had this kind of lever and this this had these kind of knobs on it and and the snare gates you know went from a a band to a to a uh, a rod you know bent down and around and he just he knows all of that stuff so there's there's a bunch of guys out there that know me i mean acrolytes are not too hard i mean that that one i got right i hope and there's yeah there's some other things there's some things that i've experienced since i've been a ludwig artist for uh oh it's about almost 17 years now uh and there's some things that i've seen them uh go through manufacturing wise where i can speak to to those kind of things because they don't really document the whole serial number and badge thing is a mystery you know this goes way back uh you know because there was so much i don't want to say sloppiness but there was some sloppiness <laughs> that that went into you know or, or i want to say they weren't as meticulous about you know serial numbers and and you know there are repeat serial numbers from different eras uh for example and it's just, and it depends what kind of badge it's on. And you don't really know when, quite exactly when one badge ended and when another began. Or there would be a badge, the 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 uh, blue olive badge, the parallelogram badge, you know, whether it's got pointy edges or rounded, you know, and, and you know, and the cutoff in that was somewhere like 76, 77, 78. And then it went to a rounded badge because I guess kids would would pick at the edge of the badge and poke their fingers. I mean, they were, they were sharp, you know, so they changed the badge. You know, there was, 
There was uh, the the newish badge that was in Monroe for many, many years, but there was a Chicago version of that for just about a year, year and a half. And that's considered a transition badge. Uh, and, and I believe uh, the, the plant moved from Chicago to Monroe, North Carolina uh, in November of 84. It was right after Thanksgiving of 84, everything moved. So technically kind of very end of 84, 85 was the beginning of the Monroe badge which looked just like the last Chicago badge, except it said Monroe instead of Chicago. So there's that's like a certain era. Those are the last of the Chicago drums, and those have a certain uh, cachet, you know, among collectors and stuff. And same same drums, because they moved all of the equipment from Chicago to Monroe. So it was all the same stuff, just in essentially a different building, well, different state as well. And uh, uh, so th- there's there's, you know, there's a lot going on as far as, you know, when certain drums were made. They got better at it. You know, they began to realize, you know, the drummers find this stuff important. We better, you know, be be a little more uh, forthcoming, you know, with, you know, not that they're trying to hide it, but it was never a big deal. But it became a big deal. You know, drummers became concerned with dates and badges and eras and shell construction and edges and all sorts. Drummers became very educated, really kind of in the 70s, especially in the 80s. And companies had to rise to the occasion. You know, Ludwig was hardly the only one. They all started talking about the specs of the drums. If you go back to an early Ludwig catalog, you know, even like, let's say the 60s, they didn't talk about edges. There was no, you know, you just, they didn't even talk about what their drums were made of. You just, you know, it was a metal drum. Well, there was a time when metal meant brass. And then later they had to, and they never said brass. You just, you just knew it. That's just what it was. That's just what a metal drum was. And they they went to an aluminum shell, and at that point, and they called it lut alloy, which is <laughs> a, an alloy, which aluminum is an alloy, I guess. Uh, and and they or they did one little thing to it to make it an alloy, and that became the super became the supra, the super phonic, I guess, became the supraphonic when it became uh, sixty three sixty four became an aluminum drum, and they came back eventually with the brass supers, and then they then they you know still. Uh, then they still had the aluminum one, which was the essentially the uh, well, the, the brass ones became a black beauty, the aluminum ones stayed a superphonic bronze drums, copper, you know, all that stuff. They reintroduced the acrylite, the the uh, the famous acrylite, the the sort of the the missing link was the six and a half inch, which right around 1970 71, Ludwig made a bunch of them for uh, New York City or, or state, I guess, schools. And it was basically it was a six it was a six and a half inch acrylite with ten lugs on it, and it was like a super except they had it was the Keystone lug, or the, the the twin lug, not the Imperial lug, and and they just made a, a handful of those, relative handful, and those became very desirable. Eventually, last few years, Ludwig reissued a six and a half inch acrylite just because it was so people wanted that versus a six and a half super, which is basically just a chromed acrylite. You know, and, but they really wanted that acrolyte, that six and a half. So Ludwig put it out there. You know, there and and companies, you know, thankfully have been responsive to uh, to to what drummers want. You know, they pay attention to what you know drummers talking. You know, oh, we love the old style this or the old style that or whatever it is. You know, why'd you? You know, what's with all the heavy hardware and all that stuff? And and companies all backed down and started making lighter weight hardware. You know, which is which is smart. Tama went as far as to make an almost exact copy of the old Ludwig fourteen hundred cymbal stands. I mean, it, literally, the wing nuts are the only thing that's different. Otherwise, you would not know the two apart. I mean, that's how popular. I still use them. I still use because they're lightweight and they're compact. I still use the old sixties Ludwig cymbal uh, stands. Now, I'm not playing real hard, you know, when I'm playing in town and on tour. I'm using different hardware, of course. But when I'm dragging stuff around town, I use lightweight stuff that's also strong. But those those stands are, you know, I'm not playing 22-inch heavy rides bashing the heck out of them. I mean, I play a 20-inch ride, 18 maybe, and and that's all I need. You know, and my back thanks me every time I have to lift a bag with all of that hardware in it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad I've got those lightweight stands. I've got a lightweight, you know, Ludwig snare stand. Uh, the the only one, the only, the only brand where I've strayed on the hardware has been with Yamaha, and they make a, a great line of, new lightweight hardware called Crosstown and uh, which is aluminum based stuff and it's considerably lighter than their all steel counterparts and i got one of those hi hat stands and it was literally half the weight 
of the Ludwig stand I'd been carrying around. You know, it shaved off about five pounds. It's like, that makes a difference, you know? Absolutely. Uh, you know, so that's, so, so anyway, getting, getting to, you know, to my knowledge of Ludwig stuff, some stuff, yes, I know a lot, some stuff, you know, I got a lot to learn, but uh, I'm glad I was able to help on that, on the super, on the uh, Acrolyte, sorry. So for this rare in demand Acrolyte, how many of them do you own? One. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one and it, and it, you know, it sounds and looks like, you know, the new ones. I mean, they're, they're, you know, actually, actually it wouldn't sound like that because it would have, it has lighter hoops on it. Back in the day, they used 1.6 millimeter hoops. Everything lately has been 2.3 or even three millimeter hoops, you know, or, or a, a die cast hoop, which is heavier still. Uh, but those lighter hoops made a difference sonically. I mean, there's so many things you can do to a drum. You know, it's not just the shell. You know, and it's not just the way you hit it, and it's not just the heads, and it's not, you know, on a snare, just the wires. I mean, it's the lugs, it's, it's, uh, and it's, and the hoops make a huge difference. These lighter hoops, uh, make, make toms sound really good. It really helps the fundamental, and they just sound really nice and, and punchy, which is kind of the opposite. And again, it's a weight issue when you put it on the shell of a, of a die cast hoop. Uh, all the Gretsch drums used to come with die cast hoops. They were, you know, sort of aimed at jazz drummers and they all had, they all tended to want to be tuned like jazz drums because that's just how they sounded because those heavy hoops robbed a lot of the fundamental. It, it brought out the high end and it, and it, it let the attack come through. It let the drums speak more, you know, and when you tune them up, you know, you would have more tone, but you wouldn't, couldn't get a lot of punch out of them because those hoops just robbed it. They just kept that from developing. And if you put, a regular lightweight hoop, and you can still buy them from some of the drum supply places. Put those on a tom, on a new tom. It's a whole different drum. You get a lot of, lot of low end out of it that you wouldn't get otherwise. So I want to be respectful of your time here, and this has been an unbelievably incredible <laughs> conversation for me. Uh, and I can just keep going. Oh, I got, I got time. I don't have to eat for another hour and a half. You've just finished your European tour and Australian tour with the band. What are the future plans for Al? I'm assuming now you're going to take a bit of a break, but the, is there anything on the horizon that you're looking to do? Well, there will be, you know, we, we, we all do things independently of each other. Of course, uh, as far as the, the Al project, uh, there will, you know, barring any disasters, there will be future tours. I don't know if we're going to go out in 2024. Uh, uh, I would say no later than 2025, uh, we would be out, uh, not, quite sure what kind of tour we're doing i don't think we're going to return to the uh vanity tour exactly i think we're going to return to the show at least this next time out uh but again i, I don't know quite when that's going to be if we don't go out next year that's okay i don't mind having a little more time off uh as far as recordings that's hard to say i mean if al has an idea we can go in and do it we're uh you know mandatory fun was the last album under a record contract under sony and uh we're we're not obligated to put out 12 songs at a time as we pretty much were with them you know they didn't want to hear about singles you know it's like well when you have 12 songs then we release the album which made it a little tough for some of the parodies because some of the parodies existed you know well before the album was ready to be released well before al had the single you know the the you know the the lead single that was going to be the you know the hot parody there'd be some other parodies on there that were pretty good but nobody had ever heard because they were waiting for the album to be completed now if al has an idea for a parody or an original or a polka medley you know we can go in and cut it on almost no notice and without an, a, a label being in the way can distribute it you know immediately uh and i mean in legitimate you know with spotify or pandora or amazon music or whatever or apple music you know al has that power as an established artist, uh, to, to put that stuff out there. You know, you don't need a label to connect with Apple anymore the way you kind of used to, you know, it's not, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's not that way anymore. You know, artists have, have, have a lot more power than they did, uh, whether they know what to do with it, you know, whether they could promote themselves, that's just, that's, you know, imagination and creativity and, and, you know, persevering, you know, labels have that machine in, in, you know, place and they can do that. But, good artists and especially if they've come up through that industry as al has uh knows how to do that and if he wants to release something on apple music on a certain day they will do it so he can promote it you know this this friday coming out you know uh you know it's friday the 12th or whatever you know check out my new polka medley you know and and he can do that on his own he doesn't need a label to do that 
there's no manufacturing anymore. I mean, you get something, you you mix it, you you master it for the particular streaming platform, and you email it to somebody, you upload it somewhere, and and it's it's there, it's immediate. So there are certain advantages to being able to do that. When that's going to happen, I don't know. But when it's going to happen, uh, it will happen immediately. Whenever Al has the idea, it's going to turn around very quickly, seven, 10 days, something like that. It will be very much on top of, if it's a parody, it'll be on top of you know the hit that's out at that time. They'll both be out at the same time, which is really hard for us to do otherwise. Yeah, and that keeps things current. Like I believe the band has sold upwards of about 12 million albums over Al's career. But unlike legacy bands that continue to sell their catalog, your albums tend to sell a lot when they come out because they're current with that particular time. And I don't know how much of the back catalog is selling in comparison. I think it's very much a, a there's a timing to the album releases and the sales. Well, certainly. I mean, I, there are people discovering Al for the first time. You know, young, young people who come to the shows. You know, our, some of our older fans, you know, will will come in and they'll bring their kid, you know, the six, eight, ten-year-old kid, hearing Al for the first time, and suddenly he's a fan. And hard to imagine that the parents wouldn't already have all the albums, but maybe they'll want to get the catalog for, for their kid. And... Honest, I I assume that this I don't know if it's anything's being manufactured. I mean, the label could certainly do it if they want, but I don't know that they're manufacturing any of the old product anymore. Like when they run out of, you know, an album, I I don't know that they'll repress it. I mean, I don't know that there would that they would think there's enough of a market for it when people, you know, should just be streaming it. I guess I I don't know, uh, but it's certainly out there. I mean, certainly you know, uh, uh, if someone wants to assemble a catalog, they could do so if not physically, you know, they can certainly stream everything, you know, just buy it. You know, they can Amazon music, what Apple music has all of the stuff on there. And in fact, there was Sony had put out a box set with all of the albums, uh, the 14 studio albums and a 15th album of, uh, semi rarities and, and a couple of different versions of things. And that album, while it's not available as, as a physical album, which is too bad, I think Sony missed the boat on that. They could sell a ton of those. Uh, maybe someday they will. But that 15th album is certainly available uh, track by track. And so people have access to those things, to those songs as well. And and there's quite a network of uh, fans that have all of the rarities and have all the things that Al did on Dr. Demento's show that are technically unreleased. And, and you know, all of the, the, the bedroom recordings, all of those things, you know, of just Al and the accordion. And... Uh, you know, the, those are all out there, too. I mean, while they're not officially released, you know, those are available. And Al knows they're out there. And it's just, you know, and they've been on the radio. It's not like it's a big secret. But, you know, and there's a ton of live shows out there. I mean, it's it's whatever the fans want, they can get. You know, as far as physical product, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, the last real physical product, actually, last real physical product was with this new movie that's out, uh, Weird, the Al Yankovic story. There was a soundtrack album that came out uh, uh, here in the States. What's interesting is, is the movie, and it's a very good movie, uh, was streaming on Roku for free. I th I'm sure it still is. Uh, it's probably on other platforms as well, but has not been released in a physical form, at least not in the States. Australia released it uh, in April uh, in, in uh, Blu-ray and 4K, and I believe a DVD format. Uh, they, have a they have a physical uh, product for that movie, Whereas we don't here in the States, which is interesting because I think the market would be huge in the States and Canada, even perhaps Europe. I don't know why, if there's some streaming issue and physical product conflict, I, I don't know what the deal is. But for whatever reason, if somebody really wants one, they can get an Australian copy. Uh, unfortunately, it's a different, uh, actually, in the case of the DVD, it's a different region. It's a different format. But I think a Blu-ray will play all over the world. So if somebody absolutely has to have that, they can get it in Australia. And what was the inspiration for the movie? Well, that that started with about 10 years ago, uh, a uh, YouTube channel called Funny or Die uh, that does all sorts of little funny uh, clips, little, little uh, you know, short story kind of things. They did a uh, fake promo for a fake movie on, on Al. And uh, and just had all these scenes, and it was literally just the just the promo was written. Just all these different things that went into the promo was the entirety of of what had been put down 
you know, on on paper. And they made this whatever it was, minute and a half long thing. And and uh, even Al appeared in it. So he was in on it, you know, but but uh, it just, you know, that was in there. That was something that we would show, in fact, between songs uh, and, and when we would tour with the big production. That was one of the video elements that would show while we're backstage changing costumes that would come on and, and you know, entertain the fans. Well, the uh, the uh, producer, director of that, Eric Appel, uh, decided for whatever reason, and it took years, decided to make a whole uh, a movie, basically, a biopic out of it. But it wasn't intended to be accurate uh, by any stretch. And Al was in it. Al was co-writer. Al and Eric wrote it together. And uh, Al is one of the co-producers on it as well. And Al has a has a, a appears in it actually as one of the Scotty brothers. He appears in it yes. as Tony Scotty. And uh which was Al's first label, Scotty Brothers. And uh uh it it uh I think they just wanted to expand on it. And I'm not sure why it took so long, but the the seed had been planted a long time ago. And it just kind of it took a while to germinate. And once it got going, they were they were on it, and and it got turned around. We recorded some new songs for it. Uh, unfortunately, none of none of the band Al got to be in the movie, of course, but none of the band was invited to be in the movie. I don't know, you know, not we wouldn't play band members. We're too old, you know. The movie takes place in the basically in the seventies and and eighties, uh, you know. But as far as any kind of another part, we weren't uh, we weren't asked to come down. I said, you know, can I just come down to watch? And I could just have like the craft services. I could just have lunch. He says, no, sorry, we're you know we're on a schedule. Anyway. Uh, but we got hooked up with the guys that played us in the movie. And the guy that played me is a LA actor and drummer named Tommy O'Brien. And I haven't met him yet because we've been on the road since this all sort of came out. But now that I'm home, uh, I think I'll, I'll be able to say hi to him in person and, and, uh, you know, shake his hand and sit down and just talk. And, uh, you know, I don't know if he's playing in any bands in town, but he's quite a good drummer. A part of his audition for the role was, was, uh, some shots of him sitting down and showing that he could play drums. And he can, he, he plays well. Uh, but he was, he was, uh, he said some very nice things, uh, in some interviews that he's done and, uh, which was very, very cool. And it's very interesting and a little surreal to see somebody playing me. But again, because the story's not true, you know, in situations and saying things that like never happened, you know, or didn't happen quite the way they're portrayed in this, in this biopic. And it's just, it's very kind of surreal to watch that. The very first time I saw it, I was just, my mouth was just sort of hanging open. And, uh, and we actually, it's interesting because it's, I think the movie is quite dramatic at times. I mean, it's, it's a comedy technically, but it's, it's quite, you know, not really dark, but it's pretty, it gets, you know, pretty emotional. It gets pretty dark at times. Yeah. I, have, I have seen the film. And, and, and it was interesting. We got to see the, uh, the movie we were in Philadelphia on a night off during the Philadelphia Film Festival, and they happened to be screening the movie that night. And they didn't—I don't think they planned it that way. It just—it just worked out. Of course, we knew it, and we invited ourselves down. And Al came up and on on the stage at the theater and said some nice things and all that. But the whole band and crew came down and and got to see the movie on the big screen for the first time and with an audience for the first time. And all of these things that I thought were so you know, dramatic and dark, all of a sudden the audience was cracking up. They just, they found humor and the whole thing. And it's like, I guess, I guess it was just me. I don't know. But, but again, looking back and, and maybe it's just that it's so well acted and you don't expect that it's very, the things that are serious come across as very serious. They got some really good actors in there and they did a really good job. This was not treated as a joke. Uh, this could be, you know, this, this stands on its own other than the fact that it's not true at all. Uh, it stands on its own as a as a, a very watchable, very good movie. It's just not terribly informative if you're trying to learn anything about Al. But the fans already know. The fans already watch this. They go, "Oh, this is this is just it's a gag. It's a spoof." You know, we get it. You know, it's just it's cool to watch, but we're we're not learning anything new. You know, it's none of this is true. One of the things that I liked about it is that there's so many real life characters in the film that are portrayed by actors, but mm. some of them are almost unrecognizable because they look so much like the real life character that they play that that was half the fun that you're looking at these real life characters <laughs> played by actors going, wait a second, that's not this person, but they look familiar. And then when you realize after sometimes you have to wait to the credits to find out that you were yeah. actually correct, that it was them, but it's a film that's worth repeated viewings because I think each time you see it, you're going to get a completely different experience from that. 
Yeah, I've seen it three, three and a half times. A half time because I sat down to watch it and bailed after about thirty minutes. <laughs> but I, I've seen it now three times and and find something new each time. And uh, should probably sit down. It's it's been a few months since I sat down with it, and should probably sit down and just you know, it's I think it's an hour and forty minutes, something like that. And uh, you know, but it, but it's very watchable, and and uh, you know, I'm very happy for Al. It's won it's won a lot of accolades. I know that Daniel Radcliffe, who plays Al. Uh, is up for a BAFTA award in England, uh, you know, for his role in that. Uh, I think Al has gotten a recognition from uh, either the Producers Guild of America or the Writers Guild of America, something like that, for his work on it. Actually, he would qualify for both. Uh, it's won some sort of award for best something or other streaming uh, special something. I don't know. It's it's gotten very good reviews and it's gotten some very cool accolades and. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm surprised that it hasn't made it to a physical product uh, here in the States because the fans would absolutely buy it. I would buy it. Well, I would buy it for the archive, but I would buy one to have, you know, to watch it. Even though I have I have a file I can watch on my computer, but it's not the same. It's not the same. There, there's something no. joyful about physical media. You know, like I have a two thousand yeah. I have a CD collection that's about two thousand CDs because I find for me everything every physical media that I buy, I tend to value more than the digital mm -hmm. equivalent. So for me, there's just something tangible about being able to take the disc out, put it in the player and absorbing myself into it with digital. I find sometimes I just get lost in the vastness of the options that are available for me. Yeah. That's, that's uh 2000 is a hefty collection. Yeah. Should I tell you how many I have? <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Uh, well, I started, I started collecting CDs, uh, probably around 85 when they first started, you know, they'd been out just for a couple of years and it was still kind of novel, but they were very obviously catching on and the stores would start to carry them and they were becoming available. CD players were like seven, eight, nine hundred dollars And it was a ton of money, but I started, I started getting CDs like an 85 or so. And, uh, anyway, over the, and I still buy them occasionally, uh, over the years I've, I've collected about 3,100 titles. So I have uh, one of my walls back here is uh, like a wall and it wraps around mm -hmm. is uh, are all of my CDs. And uh, I think of all of them, the ones I have the most of the Beatles. Of course, I grew up with the Beatles and a uh, ton of those. And every time a new master comes out, I got to buy those two and all the box sets, the Sergeant Pepper and, and Revolver, all those come out and all of the bootlegs and all of, you know, all of that stuff. So I have probably four shelves of just Beatles and, uh, very, very proud of that. Now, I don't know who's going to buy those someday because the kids don't want them. But, uh, you know, if I can find an old Beatle fan that's around that doesn't die before I do, I can probably offload it to them. Well, you need an extra 3,100 CDs, don't you? Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Shipping's going to kill you. Yeah, oh, absolutely. But, uh, <laughs> it's probably cheaper for me to drive out to you to load them into my car than it will be to actually pay for shipping. So, So in closing here, for people that are interested in learning more about you, what's the best way to connect? Oh, uh, well, the basic information and, and, you know, uh, I don't know if it's a hundred percent what my career has been, but I've got all of my credits and I've got a, a fairly comprehensive bio and all that is all at uh, my website, bermudaschwartz.com. And, and I think most of the information is there. There's an email link there. I mean, you know, I'm not shy about, you know, giving out my email address, you know, Bermuda at BermudaSchwartz.com. You know, it's not, not a big secret. Uh, I mean, I've been online for uh, 30 years. I mean, it's, it's too late to hide now. And uh, it's uh, that, that's probably, I guess that's a good starting place. Uh, there are a series of uh, interviews and, and uh, other podcasts out there where uh, you've asked some really good uh, questions here. I mean, there's some information here that is not on other podcasts, I know. So, uh, but, but, you know, for someone's got the time and to sit down and listen and watch those, uh, there are those out there. Uh, you know, if, if anyone's interested in the catalog of work I've done with Al, that's easy enough to, to track down. Uh, you know, the other artists I played with are listed on my website as well. And any of the releases they've done, those are easy to look up on YouTube or, or wherever, uh, you know, uh, there are a number of other recordings I've done with other bands. So the good starting place though is BermudaSchwartz.com. Uh, you know, I, somebody had set up a Wikipedia page of me years ago and I have to check it now and again, because the, the nature of that is that anybody can go in and contribute. And I don't think anybody's done anything malicious, but sometimes they just get things wrong. 
And, you know, yeah, you could certainly go in and screw up somebody's page, but, you know, I'd rather, if it's going to be out there, you know, I, I don't mind that it's there, but I will go in about once a year and just make sure everything that's in there is accurate, that it hasn't been changed. And, uh, you know, I, I haven't got the patience really to go in and put a complete discography in there. I mean, I've got that on my website. And my website is linked on Wikipedia. So certainly, you know, if you start at Wikipedia, it's going to lead you to my site anyway. And that's where the core of the information is going to be, BermudaSchwartz.com. Actually, I accessed tons of information from your website. And I just, it's nice to have everything kind of conveniently in one location. So for me, it was an incredible wealth of information and inspiration. It's been an absolute joy to connect with you. Well, thank you. I hope that we actually get to cross paths at some point. Maybe the next time you're down in this area, I will definitely reach out and I plan to keep in touch with you and continue to follow your career. In closing, based on your decades of professional experience, what advice would you give to a young up and coming drummer? I, I would say to learn and to grow. You know, uh, don't be afraid to learn. Don't be afraid to grow. That's just how things are. That's how life should be. Uh, but certainly when you've got an instrument, uh, certainly when there's, you know, other people that know more than you, uh, certainly when, you know, you have to be at a certain level to go out and and do what you do. You know, if you want to play drums, you have to be at a certain level. You have to have gotten there somehow. You have to have learned a certain amount. And the more you know, uh, the, the better off you are. The more you know, the more you grow. I just made that up. And uh, so I, I would say learn learn and grow, you know, uh, is is, you know, and that seems obvious, but people people don't always think that way and uh you know but that's how you that's how you grow i think that's a fantastic place to end so i wish you all the best and and i look forward to connecting with you again soon so all the best for 2023 enjoy your downtime and please don't take too long to get al and the band and everyone back to my area sometime soon because i can't wait to see you again thank you very much been listening to the drummer's pathway podcast please share and subscribe to get the word out and let's keep the discussion going thanks for listening and i'll see you next time <laughs>